Irma 365 acknowledges that our work in the community takes place on the traditional lands of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And therefore, we respectfully recognise their elders past and present and the ongoing custodianship of the land and water by all members of these communities. Welcome to Get Real, talking mental health and disability. I'm Emily Webb. Before we start, we want to let listeners know that in this episode, we will be talking about the topic of non-suicidal self-injury, also known as self-harm, and also mention suicide and suicide ideation. So please do keep this in mind and take care of yourselves when deciding to listen to this episode. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, or go to headspace.org.au. Our guest for this episode is Michelle Mitchell. Michelle started her career as a teacher and more than 20 years ago left the profession to pursue her passion for wellbeing and founded Youth Excel, a centre which has supported thousands of young people and their families to access mentoring, life skills education and psychological services. She's published many books and delivers seminars, talks and education training all over Australia and overseas. Michelle's been called a teen expert and she's also a champion of parents so that they can be empowered to have connected relationships with their kids. Michelle's joining us on Get Real to talk with us about how families can support their teenagers who are hurting themselves through non-suicidal self-injury, which we'll refer to as self-harm in this episode. Self-harm is any behaviour that involves the deliberate causing of pain or injury to oneself. She's written a book called Self-Harm, Why Teens Do It and What Parents Can Do to Help, to assist families to tackle this distressing and often isolating situation. Welcome, Michelle, and thank you for joining us on Get Real. Oh, Emily, what a joy to be here. No one can see your smiling face behind the microphone there, but it is beautiful. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's always good to be able to see each other when we're talking remotely for these podcasts. So we were going to be joined by Karenza, who was un- is unable to be here, but so it's just me and you and that's that's fine. Michelle, this is a really important and confronting topic that we're going to be talking about with you today. And you have decades of experience in working to support young people in lots of areas, including when they're facing significant challenges that affect their mental health and well-being. So first of all, can you share with us an overview of your work in this area and how it's evolved over the years? Absolutely. Look, first up, I think we want to make this conversation warm and hopeful, don't we? And even though it's a heavy topic, we want to bring a lot of light in it because there is a way through and this conversation is all about shining a light on that way through. I started my career as a teacher and I only taught for four years and I realised that I was never going to care about maths and English the same way as some of my colleagues did. I just couldn't give a rip if E was on the end of a word or not. It just didn't float my boat. So, I actually left teaching four years in and I was very early 20s 
and I wanted to change the world. I started a charity and I ended up running small group programs in schools with girls at risk of dropping out of education. And it evolved over the years. I, I ran Youth Excel for 25 years. I ended up with a psychology clinic with 12 staff. And I actually worked as a mentor in that psychology clinic. But I often got the kids that didn't fit in traditional therapy. So I dealt a lot with girls who were sexting and um, young people who were self-harming. And I worked alongside of psychiatrists and GPs and oftentimes psychologists as well. But it was just beautiful to be able to step into the space of kids that sort of weren't fitting in traditional therapy. Michelle, you've written a lot of books, including a worldwide bestseller called the Everyday Resilience Journal. And we're going to be talking to you about the topic of self-harm in teenagers, which you've written a book about for parents and carers. Now, this is a confronting topic. It's something that is often hidden and parents are understandably distressed and can feel helpless when they find out their child is self-harming. First of all, can you tell us what self-harm is? Because it can take a lot of different shapes and forms, can't it? Let's answer that question in a really general way first, and then we can drill on into it. So non-suicidal self-harm is when someone deliberately and intentionally hurts themselves or injures themselves in an attempt to express, cope or control emotional pain. Look, it can be used as a form of self-punishment as well. But think of it like a strategy to regulate or try and um, manage big emotions. And when you think about young people who are in those middle school years, those emotions are giant. They're overwhelming. They're turbocharged. So this often looks like a legitimate strategy, but it doesn't solve problems. And that's the thing to really underline. It, it might be a very temporary way to manage emotion, but it doesn't get them the outcome they're really looking for. Yeah, and in in the book, which I've read, and it's extremely interesting and and helpful, you say, and that's called self-harm, why teens do it and what parents can do to help. You say in the book that it's the intention of the behaviour that classifies self-harm rather than the behaviour itself. Can you explain Mm. that more? Yeah, we're always looking for scars on kids' arms where they've maybe cut or, you know, burnt. And we're kind of looking for these very obvious signs. I mean, often young people are very good at hiding it and and self-harming in places that aren't so obvious. But I always say that it's intention. So I'm looking for the destructive thinking that can lead young people to all sorts of destructive behaviour. So cutting and burning is the most common form of self-harm, but it's certainly not the only form of self-harm. And it's pretty horrible to think of all the different ways that young people can hurt themselves. Let's come back to that definition. It's the intention that defines self-harm. An example of that is young people can binge drink for a lot of reasons. They can binge drink to have fun, uh, to show off, you know, to fit in, um, to take a risk, to try something new. But they can also binge drink to harm themselves. And that's a really good example to maybe define the difference between intention with behaviour. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about binge drinking. I hadn't thought of it like that. But what are the risk factors for self-harm? Are there issues you've seen in your work and that have also come out of studies? You mentioned a study before that make young people particularly at risk. Yeah, well, we always want to blame one thing, particularly as parents, don't we? I think it's part of our protective mechanism with our kids. We want to go, it was that teacher, it was that boyfriend, it's that group of friends. You know, it's technology. If they weren't on technology, it would all be okay. But the reality is we can't blame one thing. The research is very clear. 
self-harm is directly linked with poor mental health. That doesn't necessarily mean mental illness, but poor mental health. So periods of anxiety or depression, impulsivity is a big one as well, plus stressful life events plus family instability. And the combination of those three things makes the severity and the frequency of self-harm more likely. Now, I've seen young people who self-harm that do not fit into any of those boxes. So this is just a general guide. But as a baseline, we've got to realise when young people are self-harming, they're not in a great place. You know, they're in a poor state of mental health, but there's probably other things going on as well. Yeah, I'm interested when you talk about impulsivity. I mean, I've been doing a lot of research about ADHD for many reasons. Maybe that's another episode. But but that is a impulsivity is a big hallmark of ADHD and we know that you know, it, it's maybe not as well recognized in women and girls. It, it's is undiagnosed mental illness or conditions like ADHD is that a factor for self-harm? Definitely, definitely. There's this gap between thought and action. And when young people can find strategies to put in between that, they can often choose healthier responses to how they're feeling. But when that gap shortens, of course, it makes it much more difficult for them. So think of managing self-harm like riding a wave. They might get a, an impulse or a thought or they want to try self-harm because they've heard about it at school and they've heard that it works, you know. So they, they're riding this wave of giant emotions where they're considering self-harm as a legitimate option. If we can get them through that wave, they might realise that all emotions are temporary, that they do come and go, and that in the peak of the wave, they can actually learn to self-care rather than self-harm. Yeah, that was really powerful to talk about, you know, how do we nurture self-care. But in the book, one of the, the really useful things about it, among many, is that you've got stories in the book about teens you've worked with over the years who were self-harming, and also the voices of some of their parents and loved ones. What did you learn about why this behaviour happens and the supports that were needed and that are effective for young people and their families to support them? Brilliant question. Maybe I can talk for a minute about parents and how they felt. This was just like just heart-wrenching for me to really hear the raw version of what parents felt in the heat of those moments. Um, One mum said to me that she would stand on her doorstep and some days she would feel like screaming out to the neighbours for help and then other days she would feel like she would need to lock the door and pretend nothing was happening. And there was this massive contrast between how she felt from day to day and I really got the sense from parents that they needed their own safe place to process their emotion. Processing our emotions away from our kids is just really important. And then we can show up in the best way possible. I think when we don't process our emotions well, we show up with judgments and blame and criticism and even just a lot of emotion and lack of education as well. And so I really always say to parents, if you don't know what to do, go and get an appointment with a professional first just to help you unpack it before you, you know, wade on in with a young person on this topic. Young people themselves, it was really interesting. I think parents would think that they were looking for something other than what they were looking for. I describe teenagers like a book with a cover and what you see on the cover is not always the inside story. Three things they really wanted is connect with me, understand me, and protect me. And I think that protect me one, we often think that teenagers don't need, but they absolutely do. 
when we give them a clear roadmap forward, this is how this is going to roll and I'm not leaving your side and this is where we're walking and what we do is we provide guardrails around them that helps them feel safe. I think in those moments, what they're really looking for is for parents to be that big presence in their lives and be able to step in with an energy that says, I've really got this for you. Yeah, that's great. It's great to hear those practical things. I think I'm a parent of teenagers as well. And it, yeah, there's fear. But then I think when you when you have some strategies or just be able to get some information. It's so helpful. And this leads me to my next question, which you've probably covered a little bit previously, but you know, the book is aimed at parents. You know, it must feel very scary to parents if they discover that their child is self-harming. In the first instance, if a parent suspects or discovers their child has been self-harming, what, what is the first best step? And I think you did allude to it before, but yeah, what do we do? Okay, this is the most common question I get asked from parents. It's that moment where they find the blades in the room or one of their child's friends text them and tell them what's going on or they get called up to the school and there's this moment of shock. It's just coming to terms with what's happening. It's normally a surprise to parents. Even though we know our kids really well, we don't see what we're not looking for. And most parents are not looking for this. So it's a shock. And in that moment, I often get emails. I've written a blog that's on my website that's just free that anyone can access. But that is like what to do when you find out your child self-harms. And I think that step-by-step guide really helps parents unpack it. But The overall thing that parents don't want to do is they say, I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to make it worse for my child. I don't want to stuff this up, Michelle. And I always reassure them this. It's tone that matters much more than anything else. You can get a lot of things wrong with a young person, but if you have the right intent and heart and tone, they are so accommodating of us. What can parents say if they don't know what to say? Yeah, I love this. I can run through a whole lot of different phrases that might be helpful for parents. And obviously, you know, it can be first up in a conversation or mid-conversation, but I think we need to prepare our kids that we're about to have an intense conversation with them because sometimes we just launch on them. (laughs) And like we could say to them, look, I need to have a really important conversation with you. It's probably going to take about 40 minutes. Where do you want to have that? So give them some kind of control and choice over it. At that point, at least you've got them interested, Emily. That's the, that's the reality of it. You can say something like this. If I was in your mind, this would totally make sense right now. But looking on from the outside, it doesn't make the same sense for me. And this is really hard for me to understand. And I'm going to need your help. And hopefully that gets them to the point where they feel safe enough to open up their space and life and heart a bit without feeling that you're going to collapse. What they often want to do is protect us as as par- as their parents. They don't want to hurt us. So they don't want to tell us things that they think are going to buckle our world. That's why we should always offer them professional help because there's some things that they will struggle telling us because they don't want to hurt us. Another thing we can say is, is there anything that I could do that would make a difference? So you're really saying, I could, I'm here to be supportive and I want you to guide me in this process. And I think that really helps with helping them feel safe, giving them that sense of control. Is there anything going on that I could be missing? That's another great question. And would you be open to seeing someone, open to seeing a psychologist or a doctor? And just thanking them, like, I can only imagine how personal and difficult this is for you. I'm really grateful that you can talk to me this way. And I want to talk to you again about it. I don't want this to be the last time that we're talking. So, 
there's there's times where we need to make safety plans for kids and there's times where you need to go deeper. But that initial conversation is basically about I hear you, I accept what's going on. That's a big one because what happens is parents want to fight it. They want to shut it down. They want to dismiss it. And I'm going to sit with you in this and together we're going to walk forward and I'm going to get some guardrails around that so you can feel as safe as possible. Oh, that, that was really great to hear. So, so practical. I love it when we can have these practical conversations. So you have worked with a lot of families, a lot of parents, and, and this issue in particular is one of the, the areas because you've written a book, you know, you know about it. This is one of the areas that you have some expertise in. What have parents shared with you about what has worked for them and I guess the journey, because you did say that there, from research, there does tend to be a bit of a, a period of time that this behaviour can happen and then it ends. But what what have you, I guess, been told by parents about this journey and the things that really help them? And obviously, a lot of the strategies that you're sharing help as well. It's so highly individual. And I think that's really important to underline because in our culture today, we have this concept that we go to the GP, we get a care plan, we go to a psychologist, it's instantly all better. And what we don't acknowledge is that this is really complicated for some kids. And for some, not so traditional forms of therapy do work. And I think it's because if they relate to someone and if they feel like they're understood and they've got a connection with someone, that automatically brings a sense of safety that's very empowering for young people. So aunties, chaplains at school, new bosses at work, if they get a new job at work, there's all sorts of people that can come into their world that can really add value. So I think when it comes to moving a child forward, there's some key things. Connection with healthy role models is, is so, so critical, but you can't force it or make it happen. So you're trying to tip the scales in their favour and bring in environments where they feel most connected to the people around them. So tipping the scales in their favour can say, you know, how much time are they on technology and how much time are they in environments where they're actually being able to connect with healthy things and healthy people. The second thing that's really worked is parents actually just stepping up into just a caring, compassionate, but firm space too, which says that I've got a plan forward and I'm the big person right here and you can lean on me. The third thing is getting a very, very practical how-to safety plan, coping kit, literally build a box with kids with things that help them cope when their emotions are at their peak. Because essentially, if we can help them tolerate big emotions, we can help them ride these waves. I like the idea of hearing about that box of, you know, items to help them navigate through. That's really interesting. How can life look for young people who have had experience of self-harming, your book has a message of real hope and encouragement for families, which is really, really good. Most young people don't self-harm for more than two years. It's a it's a strategy that they really do start to realise doesn't work for them in the long haul. Very small percent of young people are self-harming after its onset in five years' time, which is in itself quite hopeful for parents. And if you think about when they initiate self-harm is normally in those middle school years and that brain pruning can be at its peak during that time, those emotions are big, they're overwhelming, they're giant, but they do mature through some of this stuff. We're trying to help them develop healthy ways of coping while they're maturing through it. So your question is hope. 
I catch up with some of my clients that I saw when they were 13 years old that sometimes stayed with me for three, four, five years. And I hear about their life now. They've got partners. They've got fantastic jobs. They're not giving the finger to all the adults that they used to give the finger to. (laughs) A lot of them are on stool and medication and seeing a psychiatrist and have formed incredible bonds with professionals that have helped them through. But they're living pretty, um, you know, fulfilling lives. And it's not that they don't have their challenges. And it's not that they, you know, don't have those memories that can come back and haunt them sometimes, but they're stronger for it. And so many of them are helping other people. I've got a few clients that are psychologists now, and it's it's a beautiful thing. That's so great to hear. You're a mum yourself to boys. Is it two boys? Two boys, 24 and 20 now, actually. So when I wrote the book, they were teenagers. Now they're young adults. So they're all, they're getting big and grown up. And I guess, you know, we speak to professionals often and they say that often people think that when you're in a profession that you've got it all sorted out. Look, I keep you humble. Let's say that. Look, they really, really keep you humble. And I look at you, my boy's life is their personal life, so I don't share it a lot. But what I can share is that during times where your kids are wobbling or you don't feel like they're their best self, there's a fear. There's a nervous bystander energy that you get that's a really instinctive, normal response as a parent. And it's managing that energy first that enables us to show up well for our kids. And If there's anything I've realized now having a 24-year-old is that what they look like when they're 14 and 24 is worlds apart. And you've got to come sometimes hang on for a ride and realize that this is a season in their life. And we want them to have memories of us showing up well. It's perspective. Mm -hmm. Emily, this 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 game is all about perspective when it comes to teenagers. Yeah, I'm I'm right in the thick of it. So I'm really interested in all the things about teenagers. I guess you spoke about, you know, things change. Like I'm not the same person I was at 15, then 25. Now I'm, you know, in my 40s. Things have changed. Even in the past years, I feel like I've had a lot of rapid personal growth, kind of had it forced through COVID, I think. And, you know, labels can be harmful, I guess. I guess, you know, when you, one thing is not who you are, I guess. Do you have thoughts about that? Because, you know, I think there's some fear or, Sometimes we want to be um, defined by something, but that can change, as you said. What I'd really love to know more about your thoughts about that. I really love that because I think in our society we're really misusing medical terms. So we're often calling poor periods of mental health mental illness. Now, mental illness is a life you know, long condition for most people that needs to be medically treated and monitored and it really impairs their everyday life. And I think young people and us as parents, we're so quick to say they've got anxiety or they're, you know, we're using these really, really um, defining words. Now, it's not that having a diagnosis can't be freeing sometimes because it gives us language for our experience, but I think we need to be really slow to move you know, we don't need to, not everything needs to be an actionable moment for parents. And even though young people deserve professional help at the moment when they're first struggling, because that's when intervention is most likely to be effective. What we don't want to do is slap a label on things too quickly and box them into a corner. The more they repeat something about themselves or believe something about themselves will really stay with them for life. So we need to be cautious about that. 
terminology changes a lot. I, I was a journalist for many years and, you know, the way that you report on, on things changes, on how you reference things. And yeah, I'm, I'm always thinking about, yeah, what, how do we reference mental health, mental illness? Because if anything, the last few years have shown us that mental health is absolutely crucial to all of us. Many people during COVID have discovered that they have needed some help with their mental health, whereas they'd never thought about it before. I guess what are your views about the kind of terminology that you think is, you know, useful to use around our mental health, which we all, you know, have a stake in? There's some firm facts that I rely on. This is how I speak to parents. And mental health or, or the, the the strength of our mental health can come and go. It's in a state of flux for all of us, no matter where our genetic baseline is. So that state of flux is something that I guess we're constantly working with and evolving with as human beings. But I like coming back to these firm facts when it, when it comes to my everyday language with young people. And one of those firm facts is no matter what state of mental health that you're in you were born for something significant and on purpose and that your worth as a human being is not defined by your momentary mental health or or how you feel about yourself another firm fact is this is that tomorrow can always be brighter and that there are always ways that we can learn grow and help that we can get for things to move forward so I think if we put our firm fact on things that are very negative and limiting it doesn't give us a very strong light forward. Michelle we've spoken about how the behavior self-harm can look like a lot of different things I mean I actually hadn't thought properly about binge drinking being you know not just something that teenagers do to like get drunk and have fun it can actually be self-harm Now, in your book, you do mention something about digital self-harm. So obviously, this is a kind of newish thing, but can you explain what that is? Yeah, this will blow some parents' minds because it's it's just like, you know, it's just like you're like, really? You can see parents going, really? But sometimes young people can set up anonymous or fake profiles and bully themselves online. So yeah, they can they can send themselves hate and and endless hate sometimes as a way of damaging their reputation online and maybe drawing attention to how they're really feeling about themselves. I've seen young people go to the guidance officer at school and say, um, someone's bullying me online and, and showing them evidence of that. And when they follow IP addresses and it all gets, you know, brought out on the table, it was actually them that was bullying themselves online. Wow. I've heard of things in the past where people send letters, threatening letters to themselves, but I haven't heard of that. But I guess it would make sense that it would translate to the digital world. You know, what's really interesting too, is it gives young people immediate feedback on what their friends are thinking about them. Because when they just say, get bullied their friends will either come to their defense or back up the bully you know that you know or not show up at all and so if a young person goes away from a day at school thinking you know no one likes me um, I don't fit anywhere I don't belong they can actually put that online and give themselves hard evidence of that or confirm that bias right there very quickly Um, and I find that's often why young people do do it so is is it something that happens a lot or is it a bit like I just want to understand is this just a kind of anomaly or is it actually a thing like obviously it's a thing we're talking about it 
Yeah, it is a thing. It doesn't happen as much as physical self-harm, but it's more common in boys, which is really interesting considering the time. Sometimes our boys are spending a bit more time on gaming and this is a common platform it happens on. So, and, and hate talk is very common on gaming sites as well. So it's, it's really interesting where it shows up and how it shows up. And potentially boys think that maybe cutting themselves is for girls and, and looking for a different way to express that. Wow. I'm learning a lot in this conversation. I, I had one kind of thought about what self-harm was and it, it reading your book and, and talking to you, it's a lot bigger and a lot more uh, nuanced and not complicated, but yeah, it, it, it's all, as you said, the kind of support that people need is very individual. And I guess the the same for some of the ways that we try to self, self-soothe or self-treat ourselves, I guess. Michelle, the past few years of the pandemic and COVID, you know, it's been really hard. And one of the things that we have noticed, I think everyone has, is that mental health is really at the top of the conversation list. What have you observed or heard or seen in your work about this practice and has it got worse? Has it been harder to get help? What have you been seeing during these past few years of the pandemic? Okay, let's let's just talk about the research. Typically, you know, a pretty commonly accepted stat was about 10% of young people will self-harm at some time during high school. During the pandemic, we've seen the UK stats particularly go up to 20 and 30% of the population, which is absolutely massive. Headspaces stats are showing us that it's actually our tween girls really on that onset of puberty that have struggled the most with their mental health. So we're we're looking at, I think, particularly that age between say like 12 and 14 as a really critical time for kids, but it's a time where they've gone to tech to find places to belong. When they stumble across or search for something related to self-harm and they start to look at it, the nature of technology is that it sends you more of what you're looking at. So it can become this rabbit warren where young people are digesting this diet of something that is harmful behaviour but starts to appear very, very normal and that they can identify with really, really quickly. So that's where they can become, you know, it can become habitual and a habit can form really quickly. I think technology has played a massive role in that for young people. Now, Michelle, we're coming to the end of the conversation and it's been really interesting, but I want to ask, is there anything that you want to say before we wrap up? I guess if parents are right in the thick of it and they're feeling heavy with it, don't forget to use those national helplines. That's why we pay Texas. Like, get get on board with that and use the services that you can. I know wait lists are incredibly high at the moment, but don't dismiss the community around you and asking for help because I feel like we're all in this to help each other at the moment and that there's people around your world that are probably going to be more than willing to give your hand, step into that space and try and lift the shame around this so we can actually show up for people in the way that is helpful as well. So it all comes down to community, Emily, I think, and realising the power in that for times where our kids really are going through a hard time. Sometimes someone else can say something that we've been saying to our kids for months and months and months and all of a sudden it lands and you feel like rolling your eyes, but that's the power in it. 
Yeah, and it's another good point, isn't it, that you made about, you know, your children having positive role models that, that aren't you. So, you know, auntie, a friend, a boss, and I think that's the power of yeah. it. I've seen that in my own life with my teenagers having that network where I've said it seven times, but someone else says it and it, and it cuts through. Michelle, it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. A really important conversation, and we will put details of helplines in the show notes, as well as Michelle's book and the blog that she referred to. So Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Get Real and sharing your experience and your expertise and some really, really great practical tips for parents. So thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. And I think we can leave with, you know what, parenting's usually difficult when you're doing a damn good job of it. So if parents are going through a hard time, it's probably because they're really invested. Oh, that makes me feel a lot better. Thank you. (laughs) That's made made my day. For our listeners, if you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. There are free translation services available. And there's also 13 Yarn on 13 92 76, which is a 24-7 crisis support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We'll also put some other details of helplines in the show notes. Details for Michelle's book, Self-Harm, Why Teens Do It, and what parents can do to help, which is published by Big Sky Publishing, will be in the show notes for this episode, as well as related information and services about this topic. I'm Emily Webb, and you've been listening to Get Real, talking mental health and disability. Join us next time on Get Real for more conversations about mental health. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love you to share Get Real with your friends and networks. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and look after yourselves.